look at y'all. Y'all are just really doing big things. And one of the ladies said, because you inspire us. And it was almost like a light bulb went off. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want to inspire people, you know, and whatever that looks like for you, you know, and it may be different for the next person, but I want to inspire. I want to inspire people in some way. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the KonMari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified KonMari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Supermom by day, superwife by night, and invisible all the time. This is what happens when you retire the superhero cape, remove the mask, and begin the journey of, who am I? How did I get here? And how long will it take to pick up all the broken little pieces of my life? Our guest today is Kismet Tension. Kismet is a life coach and author who has been making big waves with her new book, Broken Little Pieces. Since then, she's been touring and speaking about her work and sharing her very powerful message of finding your authentic self. She lives in Atlanta with her husband and two children. I really loved her book. It is very emotional and very much enjoyed reading about her story. It allowed me to get very deep into her story about becoming invisible, experiencing great loss, and emerging vulnerable and real. Welcome, Kismet. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Welcome to Spark Joy, Kismet. We're so happy to have you. (laughs) Thank you so much. So we probably should start by talking about your book, Broken Little Pieces. There's a great quote in there. It's, it's a journey to take all of the pieces to create the mosaic of your life's mural. So beautiful. Uh, could you share some events that shaped your life and your own personal journey and that I'm assuming inspired the book? Yes, it was life. It was waking up one day realizing what is going on? Why am I constantly striving, trying to find happiness when on the outside looking in, I had the perfect marriage, the perfect family. I had the house and the picket fence. You know, I had everything that society said, you're doing good. But I knew something on the inside wasn't right. Something was missing. And I felt like I had to get to the root of it. I'm going to get to the root type of person <laughs> as a life coach. That's what I do. I take my clients on this journey of let's, let's get to the root. Let's get to the why. But I couldn't figure out what that was for my own life. And for me, I, for whatever reason, you know, when you're trying to find that source of that emptiness and that void, for me, I look toward my husband. Mm. So I feel like he was the reason. He has to be the reason why I'm unfulfilled and, and not really happy in life. Surely it's him because my kids, I get fulfillment out of them. My career, I get fulfillment out of that and and, and life. But it, I felt like he was just the, the reason why I just couldn't experience what I felt like real authentic joy was. Um, so mm-hmm. I started going down this rabbit trail of why am I here? Like, am I really, did I marry wrong? Did I, did I, did I miss it? You know, we parent so well together. And, you know, when, when you, when you don't have the type of marriage where you're arguing and 
it's violent. Like we didn't have any of that. You know, we parent very well. We had a very, what I thought was a peaceful home, but I later realized I had a quiet home and there's a difference between quiet and peace. You know, there was no arguing. There was no communication. There was really not much of anything outside of parenting. So I, (laughs) I felt like I was at the end of my rope. I felt like I wanted out, but I wanted him to be the one to say I wanted out because I didn't have the courage to say, I don't want to be here, you know? So Mm -hmm. I kept prompting, you know, are you really happy? Do you, do you want this? You know, do you want more? But he would never give me what the response that I wanted, you know, to, to validate my feelings because it really was just one sided. It was me. It wasn't him. Right. So I said, you know what, let me just start writing. And I didn't write for the sake of, writing a book and becoming an author because it has never been my dream. I wrote because I was at the end of my rope and I was like, this is the only thing that I can find fulfillment in. And to give you just a quick backstory, we lost, we had a son that was stillborn about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know what, that's, let me get back to, to doing what I love. You know, I, I went into coaching to help moms who had, who had experienced that loss. So let me go and write because something kept saying, write, write. And I'm like, well, write about what? Okay. All right. I'll go write about how I survived after losing my son and how I was able to find hope and healing in my life. And I don't know when the storyline switched and it became about me. And I realized, like, wait a minute, this 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 has nothing to do with my husband. This is this is all me. I'm empty. I'm broken. In fact, I was broken before I married him and marriage only magnified what was already there. Wow. And why do I feel the need to, to wear a mask of and be this super mom and the super wife and this mm-hmm. super coach and just super everything? But all along feeling invisible on the inside. And when you feel invisible, it's so easy to perfect a mask because you can be whatever you want to be in that moment. And at some point, you're wearing so many different masks that you don't remember who you were in front of who. So it was like, okay, which mask did you know? Did you know the the mommy mask? Mm. Or did you know the life coach mask? Or did you know the wife mask? Which mask did I show you? And so I began to just go down the the rabbit trail of when did this happen? How long have I felt invisible? And I realized that it went all the way back to my childhood where I was a middle child of three girls. I grew up in a very religious household, but and we spent a lot of time in church, but I didn't have any gifts that were important in the church. So all my sisters could sing. I couldn't sing. I was an athlete. So at church, I felt invisible. You know, people Mm. often didn't realize my parents had three girls. They thought they only had two. Wow. Even now, a couple of months ago, I was with my mom at a store and she ran into an old friend from church and he was like, who is she? And she was like, that's, that's the middle child. That's the one nobody knows. Well, that's so interesting that you bring this up because one of the things that really struck me in your book is when you talked about your journey Um, from childhood to adulthood and how part of that 
was so ingrained in trying on different roles and identities and kind of discovering your mask, so to speak. And you spoke a lot about your, your position in the family as a middle child. Um, and it seems to have been a, to have been a very important factor in, in your search for yourself. I've always been really fascinated, um, and interested in the, um, the, the idea of how sibling position impacts our development and the way our personalities grow. Yes. And so in working, in, in working with women as a life coach and, and in your own, um, and in your own work on your, yourself, have you found that middle children seem to share the same kind of similarities and seem to get lost? Well, it's, it's, it's funny you ask that because I'd never even thought about that until I wrote the book. I, I never realized how much of an impact being a middle child had on my life. So it never even dawned on me to ask my clients, well, are you older? Are you the oldest? Are you the youngest? Are you the middle? It never even dawned on me because the thing about my book and, and why it feels so raw is that everything that I experienced happened while I was writing the book. So everything came out literally as I was writing. For me, I thought it was, it felt more like a therapy session where I just poured out my heart, you know? So this realization of, wow, you were dealing with middle child syndrome and you didn't even realize it. Interesting. That came out literally as I was writing the book. So then Um, I guess that's really helped your work then as a coach. Yes. Um, for sure. Cause I mean, I do think that that really does seem to, to play a role, uh, you know, it, and, um, I mean, each child, uh, whatever your position, there seem to be certain roles that we take on in it. And even, even when you try to, even when I don't know that somebody's an oldest, I'm an oldest. And it, even when I don't know someone's an oldest, I can mm-hmm. almost pick up on that. Right. Um, it, it, you, it, it just seems like we fall into different roles, um, just automatically. It's very, it's so interesting. But is it automatic or is it, well, someone told you, well, you're the oldest, so you're supposed to be the most responsible. You're supposed to watch after your younger siblings. You're supposed to be, you know, the one who helps out more around the house. You know, sometimes we get all these roles passed down to us and we take it on. We take on that identity and say, okay, well, I'm the oldest, so I'm supposed to act like this and I'm supposed to do this. And some people carry that weight for the rest of their lives, you know, and sometimes even a burden because you may feel like, especially if your parents are deceased, you may feel like you have to be the one that continues to keep the family together and to just still always feel like you have to lead when that may really not be your natural um, genetic makeup to be in that role. You know, that is so funny that as you're saying this, I'm, I'm, having a memory of when my brother, my little brother is two years younger than I am. And I have this very distinct memory of walking into school. I was in third grade. He was in first. And for some reason, he got in trouble right behind me and got pulled out of line and had to like go stand against the wall or whatever it was. And I remember going into my classroom and going up to the teacher and I was just, I was mortified. And I was just like, I, I, my, my little brother just got in trouble. And she said, you know, as the oldest child, a lot of times you're going to feel very responsible for your younger brother. And I remember just bursting into tears when she said that. So it's interesting because I, I don't think I even thought about it myself until she said that. And it's almost as though she, she gave me that identity just as, just yeah. by making that statement. So interesting. Yeah. You call it identity. I call it a mask. 
You know, yeah. it's, and a lot of times we've been handed on, sometimes masks can be generational. It's passed down from generation to generation and you're supposed to act like this and you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to go to school and be a doctor and grow up. You know, it's all these um, identities that we pass on to other people, especially those we love. Sometimes it's not intentional, you know. I I, talk, I don't know if I spoke about it in the book. I know I spoke about it at my book signing. In high school, I used to fight all the time. And I never understood. And my mother kept asking me, why do you fight so much? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I can't help it. And while writing the book, I remember that as a kid, I was quiet. And I was like, well, if I was quiet, how did I go from a quiet kid in elementary school to this all out fighter Mm -hmm. in high school? And I remember that in middle school, my little sister had got into a fight and my cousin who had this just known reputation for fighting came in and asked me, did you jump in the fight? And I was like, no, why would I, why would I do that? And she was like, because that's your sister. And the next time your sister get into a fight and you don't jump in it, I'm going to beat you up. And I was like, oh my God, like, no, I don't think anybody could beat me up worse than she can. And from that moment on, I became a fighter. And I asked her and and she called after she read the book, she called me crying like, oh, my God, like I I know I'm wearing so many masks. And I told her, I said, do you remember that you gave me one? Hmm. And she was like, wow. And I said, when did you become a fighter? Who gave it to you? And she said, when I was um, starting school, my brother told me, he said, you know what? You're pretty, you're light skinned, and those girls are not going to like you, and you're going to have to fight all the time. Wow. Her brother gave her that mask, and she's been wearing it ever since. Wow. And passing yeah. it out. Wow. <laughs> now I'm trying to think, what are the masks that I'm wearing? Yes. <laughs> wow. I'm fascinated by this idea of mask, and I know you can... You uh, talk about this in your book for sure, and we we here at Spark Joy we're all about confronting things per the KonMari method and the KonMari way. Um, in this case, the things is clutter rather mm-hmm. than emotions, um, but there's definitely emotions that come up during the process, right? So, uh, some of our listeners are struggling with this. They are actively trying to uh, declutter and they're pulling things together and getting really real and honest about the amount of things that are in their home and how they impact their life. And they're peeling back layers physically right. and emotionally. So, could, is there some advice that you could share with our listeners on how to identify masks and maybe what to do after that to move forward? Well, even with the KonMari method, it's sometimes you almost have to even ask yourself, why? Like, why am I so attached to this? And does this thing that I'm attached to, does it validate me? And what what validation am I seeking to, to, to gain by keeping this, whether it's whether it's an heirloom, you know, or something that you feel like is passed down. Some people pass down China from generation to generation. And I'm like, honey, what are, what are you going to eat on those dishes? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and you're, you're, you're passing down this, this tradition of, oh, it's in the family, but yeah, but it's just sitting in your cabinet collecting dust. Right. Yeah. I, I love, there's a designer that encourages 
using your china right. on an everyday basis, like on a Sunday for breakfast or something, you know, actually using it. Just right. like, like what's your other dishes? Why are we saving for guests? Exactly. And, you know, treat ourselves. Right? Treat yourself. Yeah. You, you're important enough right now to have what the final things in life that are stuck away in a cabinet because you're only supposed to pull it out for Thanksgiving or holidays or whatever. That, right, right. I don't even believe in dining room tables. I'm like, no, like I would not have a, a big formal <laughs> dining room table with dishes set out that nobody can touch. That is so insane to me. I'm like, I can't. Like, why? Um, I'm going to the couch, you know, to eat. But just sometimes you have to really get to the root of what you're holding on to and why and what reward are you getting from it? You know, is it attention from someone else? So you can say, oh, I did this rather to fit in or be a part of something, you know, or I always talk about who are they. And we, we, we make so many decisions based on what they think, what they say, how they feel. And we've never even took the time to figure out who they are. Like, sure. who are these people? Who are, that, they? <laughs> who are they? Does anybody, can somebody raise their hand and please tell me who they are? But yet they, they keep us paralyzed in fear. You got so many people that won't even take a risk on doing something they love because they're worried about what they think. You know, sure. Yeah. At some point, you got to say, you know what? Enough is enough. I got to live for me. And it it may not make sense to anybody else, but to the people in your household. We downsized from a 4,300 square foot, four bedroom, four bath house Mm -hmm. to a two bedroom, two bath apartment. Wow. It is three of us. I was like, y'all, do y'all realize we only live in half of this house? (laughs) <laughs> there were parts in the house we didn't even go in. I'm like, why yeah. are we why are we here with all of this house? Big old yard, don't nobody want to cut the grass. Everybody fussing because don't <laughs> nobody want to cut the grass. You know, and I'm mad fussing because I'm the one that got to keep it clean. And I'm like, no, don't go in that room. Shut that door. Nope. Because it's clean. So leave it alone. Just walk the other way. You know, and just because Society says, oh, when you get married and have kids, you're supposed to have a house and you're supposed to live in the suburbs. And and I was like, I kind of want to move to the city. I kind of want to go live in a high rise somewhere with the city view and enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And my husband's commute went from like an hour and a half to five minutes. Right. You know, we're, we're closer to a restaurant. So we go out more like we are creating a life that makes sense to us doesn't make sense to other people because they're like, wait a minute, you had a beautiful house. I'm like, okay. And I still got a beautiful home. I'm the home. A house ain't nothing but a big storage box. And the bigger it is, the more you got to fill it up. Yep. So no, that doesn't define me. That doesn't define my family. And we're creating a life that makes sense to us. And you don't have to understand it. And somebody was like, well, what about when you get gas? They can go down to the embassy suites and get a room. <laughs> it's right down the street. I don't, or we go old school and you can get on the couch and the floor and get you a bank blanket and a pillow and call it a day. Right. That's how we grew up. And we yeah. were good. Why would I have all this house in hopes that somebody might come once a year? That's so true. <laughs> when I think about all the conversations I've had in my own head about, okay, well, I'm going to make this decision and let's see, what will someone else say about it? And these yeah. imaginary conversations, <laughs> I was running track of like, okay, well, what, what will this person think about that? Or what will this person, what will my mom think? What will my, yes. what will my sister think? And it, it's just the insanity of that, but it's, it's so true. It's almost like this running dialogue of, of, of how, how will our decisions impact other people when it's, that's completely pointless and there's it's really no point. 
purpose even 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 doing that. Yes. But I really love the line in your book, regret and perfectionism are companions. We fear having regrets, thus propelling our mindset into the ways of perfectionism. I just love that. And I think that many times we're really afraid to begin to make changes or to go down a different path because we're afraid of not doing it perfectly. Has that been your experience? And how do you suggest um, be- that, that a person begin to work through that? You change the dialogue of failure. Failure is fail, fail fun. <laughs> if, if you just say, oh, I'm going to go fail, that takes away the fear of it. You know, it's funny how when you have a kid and they're learning to walk and they fall down, we cheer. Good job, baby. Good job. You fell down. I get back up. As a kid, as a baby, as they're learning to walk, they fall and fall, but they keep going and we cheer and we push them and you have to do the same thing to yourself in life, you know, you may fall. It's okay. Get back up. You may fall again. It's okay. Get back up. Maybe you need to change your shoes. You know, maybe you need to try a different direction, you know, find that take away the fear of failure. To me, failure is to die with all of my dreams. Failure is to not reach the women that I'm supposed to reach. Failure is me just being paralyzed in fear and not doing anything. So at this point, anything that I do is a win. If I mess up or try an idea and it doesn't work, I'm still winning. If I go the wrong way, I'm still winning. Mm. I'm going. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not stopping. So you have to redefine success and you have to redefine failure and take the fear away from it. That is powerful for mm-hmm. sure. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners could apply that to their own journey when they're thinking about starting to tidy when they get in the moment, which is a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's around uh, paper or books, <laughs> the third category or the second category. Uh, and things start to get a little tough. Uh, it's all about, you know, defining what success or failure means if you've tried at all, that's a huge step. Mm-hmm. I, I tell my clients that a lot, mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of people don't even get to the point where they can say, I need to do this, you know, and start. Um, so that's just, wow, so powerful. And we can all use a little bit more of that in our lives. So Kismet, I would love to touch base with you on something. I'm curious, when you were going through your trials and tribulations in your journey, how was your experience reflected in your home? Did you feel the tendency to clean um, on any kind of level or even on an obsessive level? Or did you tend to collect clutter? We'd love to explore kind of your mindset and how your journey kind of manifested within your living environment. Okay. So the last house that we lived in um, before we downsized was a really, really big house. And, but it was very empty because I didn't believe in filling rooms for the sake of filling rooms. However, sure. during this time, I had, there was this weird need to shop and kind of buy things to try to, to try to fill the space. And I know my attempt to fill the space was a reflection on the emptiness that I felt on the inside. So it was, mm-hmm. since I'm not processing and dealing with my inside, I'll process and deal with things that I can control. So I'll go and start buying little things 
in an attempt to try to make my house feel more like a home. Oh, sure. and, you know, thinking like, oh, well, I'll make it more warm. You know, I'll try to create moods in these rooms. But yet it still never happened. You know, so there was this. And I think everybody has their coping mechanism. And at the time, I don't think I even realized that I was coping and trying to fill a void. And shopping became my attempt to do that, my attempt to feel better or enjoy or create a space that I felt like would would be more fulfilling. But you never get that feeling. You just keep buying more and more and more in hopes of something, Mm -hmm. maybe a piece of furniture or some clothes or something, hoping that something kind of gives you that wholeness. But, you know, it never does. It, It never does. Yeah, we often ask ourselves here in SparkJoy, what does our clutter say about us? So it it almost sounds like that what your clutter was saying was there was something (laughs) unfulfilled or something unfinished in your emotional space. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even even with that, I would still give away a lot of things. It was was so weird. Now that I'm kind of thinking about how... It was almost like a revolving door. I brought things in, sent things out, brought more things in, sent things out. Okay, I brought this in. It didn't make me feel better. Let me give some things away and bless someone else. And maybe that'll make me feel better. Nope, that didn't really last long. So let me go bring something else in, you know. But it's it was like a revolving door of emotion and wanting and searching, you know. And I think we all kind of hit that point, you know, just we just may hit it on different ends, you know, even with cleaning. It's one minute you're cleaning. This minute you're like, whatever, let it go. You know, (laughs) and then I'm cleaning again and I'm like, just forget it. I'm not. I'm tired of cleaning this house. I'm the only one. And then I'm cleaning again, you know, still in that cycle (laughs) of searching and wanting and hoping. Mm -hmm. But how did you eventually break that pattern? It all came out with the book. And and sit and I sat down not to write a book. I sat down to try to find my therapy and my healing. Sure. And in my writing, and at the time it wasn't even. I just it was almost like a brain dump. I just came to the computer and just poured it all out. And I had no idea what what it would look like in the end. I just knew that there were things that I had kept in my head and my heart that I needed to get out. I needed to see it somewhere on paper, you know, just out of me. Um, And I think it wasn't until I was at the end of that journey of that writing therapy session. That's what I really called it. That big therapy session that I was able to kind of look back and say, Oh, wow, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what that was, you know, because sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're in the middle of it and you're going through it, you can't really identify it and you can't like put a name to it. You just know something's, something's off, you know, and I don't like it. And it's, and, and sometimes it's so subtle, but you as a, as a person, you know, and other people can't see it. And they think, oh, you're fine. Life is good. Be grateful. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but at some point, I think it's okay to want more. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, life is good, but life can be great. You know. And I'm willing to to figure out what this is to get to my great. Mm-hmm. And that and that's what that journey was for me. Oh wow. 
that's um, so really profound. You know, in our work, a lot of times we we work with our clients as they go through the process of of exploring not only who they are now, but who they wish to be. And I think what you just said really speaks to that. And the, this idea of a vision, the vision statement is really a touchstone in the Kanmai process. And uh, thinking in terms of what do you see as your, the vision of your ideal life is something that we really f- try to focus on as we go through this process. Do you feel that your experiences have informed who you are now and what you hope for yourself in the future? Absolutely. Um, I have a, a private Facebook group and I, I encourage them and I challenge them to go and take risks and to not be afraid of failure and to just embrace it and be be willing to do something, just tr- try something. And they and now they're all writing books and, you know, starting their own businesses and doing all these things. And I was like, look wow. at y'all. Y'all are just really doing big things. And one of the ladies said, because you inspire us. And it was almost like a light bulb went off. And I'm like, that's Mm. what I want. I want to inspire people, you know, and whatever that looks like for you, you know, and it may be different for the next person, but I want to inspire. I want to inspire people in some way. You know, I had to do a radio interview this morning and at first I was kind of nervous and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what they're going to ask, you know, just, but then I just told myself, just go inspire someone, uh-huh. you know, to, that's it. Just go inspire someone mm-hmm. being you and take off and move all the other um, ideas of how you're supposed to sound or look or just whatever, let all that go, remove all those expectations and just go inspire Wow, Kismet, you've definitely inspired us for sure. And we're just so happy to have you on today. Before we wrap (laughs) up, we just want to ask you a couple questions. Okay. So at this very moment, what sparks the most joy in your life? When people are brave, when, when they are able to just move beyond their fears, to take a step. And I I call my tribe. I tell them, you know, it doesn't have to be a giant step. I'm not saying you have to go and write a book, but a step is a step, you know. And if you just take that one, that first step, the second one will come and it'll be a little easier. And then that third step will be a little easier. And and to just create your own lane, because sometimes I think we miss the mark when we compare ourselves to other people that are doing the same thing. And you see their success and in, in, in time and you feel like, well, man, how did they how did they get such a following so fast? And, you know, what what is it about them that people are drawn to them? And I always say, you know, your people will find you. And I, when I first re- published a book, I had these, I had all of these expectations, but I was really kind of setting myself, myself up for failure. Cause it's like, I want to be a bestseller. You know, I want my book in every household. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, but what if your book only reaches one person and it changes their life? Will you, will you still have that heart and that desire? Or, or do you only feel validated if you if you've touched millions? Is is mm-hmm. is that one not important enough? And so I tell them, find your one, whoever your one is, and maybe for a season you may be your one, and that's okay. 
but find your one and anything else is just icing on the cake. So if one woman was touched by my book, I found my one. Everybody else, they're just icing on the cake and they don't validate me. They don't define me and I don't allow um, somebody else's success to make my success feel like a failure because my success doesn't look like their success. And you have to take the time and redefine what success looks like for you, you know, and, and, and what are your what are your true heart reasons for what are you for what you're doing? Because if it's money, it'll never be enough because you'll always be chasing the next dollar, you know. But if you're if your heart is to serve and to help mm-hmm. others, then you'll always win. You'll always win. You cannot lose. I love that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I have goosebumps now after hearing that. That was so great. Well, before we leave you, do you have any final words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? I just say, you know, be be bold and and don't be afraid to go and create your own lane and redefine success and don't base yourself don't define your success when you're comparing someone else or looking at someone else's journey, because at the end of the day, you don't know what they've been through. You know, you, you see their glory, but you don't know their story. Sure. And if you knew their story, you might not want their path, you Mm -hmm. know, so be confident and be okay with creating your own lane and just Mm. making sure you keep that heart check and making sure that you see people and not dollar signs. You know, making making sure at the end of the day, when you lay your head down at down at night, that you were a light to someone, that you inspired someone that you whether and that could be a smile, that could be a hug, you know, just whatever. Inspire someone daily. With that, we just want to thank you, Kismet. Wow, inspire someone daily. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us here at Spark Joy. It was great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you. To connect with Kismet, you can visit brokenlittlepieces.com and follow her on Facebook at Broken Little Pieces or on Twitter at at Kizzymat, and that's K-I-Z-Z-Y-M-A-T, or on Instagram at Kismet underscore tension. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. You can find us at sparkjoypodcast.com and click Ask Spark Joy to leave a question or comment for a chance to be featured on next week's show. You can also join the discussion on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the handle at sparkjoypodcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your host, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with KonMari Media Incorporated. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of KonMari Media Incorporated or the KonMari Consultant Community.